0: Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of Stairway to Danger by John Blaine. Volume 5 Chapter 10 The Missing Caretaker Rick leaned over the plane and tied the bolt string to the dangling piece. The bolt hung straight down. Then Rick pried the rat trap open and set it. Watch, he said grimly. He put both hands on the bent frame and pulled it toward him. The bolt swung on its string straight toward the rat trap. That's how it was. The controls worked until we banged, and the bolt swung down and hit the trigger, and the trap snapped shut, catching the cables. The string broke, and I made it shorter when I tried it, but you could see it was just long enough. He bent and picked up a twig from the brown grass and touched the trap trigger. It snapped shut, the stiff wire pinioning the cables firmly. I had to move the cables out of the way to open the trap, if you remember. They're so close to the trap that the wire couldn't miss. But the bolt could have missed, Hartson Brandt pointed out. If you'd been climbing or diving slightly, it would have struck to either side of the trap. I don't think it would have mattered, Scotty disagreed. This kind of trap doesn't take much to spring. He reset the thing, then rapped sharply on the outside of the metal inspection door. The trap snapped shut. That was demonstration enough. For a moment the group was silent. The same thought was in all their minds. This had been deliberate attempted murder. Who did it? Barbie asked weakly. Rick, who would do such a thing? There was only one possible answer. It happened after we took a look at the funhouse. We were after the car that hit you and Jerry. Sis, it looks like we found it. We found it and more, Scotty said. No one would try murder to cover up a car theft or even a hit and run. At least I don't think so. There's more behind this, and I think we'd better have the state troopers try and find out what it is. You're right, Hartson Brand stated. Sorry we didn't know this last night, Rick. We'll go back to the house at once. Captain Douglas will want to know about the details. The group started toward the house, but Rick lingered with Gus. Is it really done for? Gus nodded. I'm afraid so, Rick. We might salvage the engine, but I haven't looked at that yet. Have you? But the frame is too distorted for anything but complete rebuilding. Where are the wings? They must have floated off somewhere, Rick said dejectedly. Let's go to the house, Gus. I'm sick. Cracking up was bad enough, but to find out it was deliberate sabotage makes my stomach churn. Anger made him forget to favor his injured leg, until the pang of strained cramps reminded him sharply. He slowed down a little. I'm going to get another plane, Gus. Maybe I won't be able to pay cash for it, but the insurance on this one will at least cover some of it. I'll see if the Spindra Foundation will put up the cash for the rest. I can pay them back sooner than I paid for the Cub, because there are more scientists who want to be ferried back and forth. Gus nodded. Got the same kind of plane in mind? Rick didn't want another, just like the Cub. It had been a wonderful little plane, but it only carried two. I'm thinking about a flying station wagon, he said. He named the make. It'll carry four but it's not too big for the island field. By the time they arrived at the library, Hartson Brandt already had the state police captain on the phone and then told him of the sabotage and the car at the amusement park. Here comes Rick, he said. Rick took the phone. Hello, Captain. I think we'd better have a look at that amusement park, Rick, Captain Douglas answered. You well enough to come with me? You bet I am. Rick said swiftly. And Scotty, too. Meet you at the dock in ten minutes, Captain Douglas said. You can tell me the details later. Rick agreed and hung on, and then turned to Jerry. How did you and Gus get here? We borrowed a boat, Jerry said. We'll ride back with you. Scotty and I are going with Captain Douglas to the amusement park. I'm going with you, too, then, Jerry decided. After all, I have some interest in finding the jokers who wrecked my car. Captain Ed Douglas was waiting at the dock when they arrived. During the drive down the shore road, Rick and Scotty took turns reciting their adventures in as much detail as possible. Then Rick described the rat trap device that locked the Cubs controls. After the recital, Captain Douglas sat in silence for a while thinking, Then he began to ask questions. Can you guess where the rat trap was planted? Scotty thought he could fix the time. They moved around a lot after we got to the project, and we saw lights by the gate. I think they sabotaged the plane then. Was there time? Plenty, Rick said. It couldn't have taken more than a few minutes to fix the rat trap. All they had to do was disconnect our warning horn and wire the trap to the inside of the inspection port. Hanging the bolt was easy. Captain nodded. "'Smart, very smart. "'They decided to knock you two out. "'They'd do it quickly with whatever was at hand. "'They used a rat trap, a piece of string, and a bolt.' "'I wonder where they got the trap from?' "'Jerry Webster asked. "'That's not hard to figure out,' the captain replied. "'Men have been living there. "'They would certainly need rat traps. "'The amusement park always was infested with rats, "'probably because the food that was sold there.' Scotty spoke up. "'There's one thing. These men, whoever they are, they must know something about planes. Otherwise, they couldn't have figured out a way to wreck us so quickly. And they knew enough to disconnect the warded horn.' "'You have a point,' Captain Douglas agreed. We'll remember that when we start hunting for them. You can be sure they won't be at the amusement park.' "'Why?' Rick asked. "'Because I know the cause can be found easily.' That the finger of suspicion would surely point to the amusement park. I think the answer is revenge. They wanted to get you for some reason. That made sense to Rick, all right. That means the caretaker was a phony. He told the captain of his call to Mike Curtis. No word yet, but I don't think we need proof now. They passed the Seaford turnoff, and in a short time the giant skeleton of the roller coaster was inside. I wonder what they were doing up there last night at the top, Rick mused. Could they have been setting up a signal of some kind? Jerry questioned him. That was possible, Rick told him, but he didn't have an answer to offer. Signals are for someone to see, Captain Douglas stated. I see no reason to signal anyone on land, not when they could get into the amusement park with no trouble, Could these men have been signaling a boat offshore. Scotty exclaimed. That could be it. You suppose we bumped into another smuggling case? I don't know what you bumped into, boys, but I intend to find out, Captain Douglas said frankly. The patrol car was waiting on the highway in front of the amusement park fence. As Captain Douglas and the boys drew up behind the car, a trooper got out and saluted the captain. Nothing happening here, sir. All right, Parks, thanks. Rick, where's this hinged board? Rick made his way through the tall grass. His leg was hurting a little now. Scotty followed and they found the hinged board and loosened screws. Captain Douglas slipped through, then two troopers and the boys followed. Haven't been to this place for years, Jerry Webster remarked. I've forgotten what it looks like. Scotty pointed to the funhouse. There it is, Captain. In front of the fun house, the state police officer stopped and surveyed the top of the roller coaster. Show me exactly where you saw the light. It's hard to be sure, Rick said. It was pretty dark, but I think we saw it right there at the highest point. The tracks rose to a high curve and dipped again. At the top of the curve, the underside of the track was solid boards. Elsewhere, there were boards with spaces between, like railroad ties. Signaling, Captain Douglas muttered. Doesn't seem to be any other possibility, but signaling to whom? At the rear of the building, Rick pointed to the cross piece that had given way under them. Captain Douglas shook his head. The way you kids take chances give me gray hair. If I hear of you pulling anything like this again, I'll put you in the cooler just to keep you safe. Wasn't much of a chance, Scotty objected. We were just unlucky. If the Crosby's hadn't given way, the men wouldn't even have known we were around. If the Crosby's hadn't given way, Jerry repeated, take a look at that structure. That's nothing but a termite's lunch. I bet there isn't a sound timber in that whole thing. He's right, Captain Douglas agreed. Come on, let's go inside. The back door, which led into the room where the two men had sat, was not locked. One of the troopers' hand-on pistol pushed it open. He stepped inside, disappeared for a moment, and came back to the doorway. No one inside, Captain. There's a car here. The rest followed him in. This was the engine room for the Funhouse. Two huge electric motors, belts still in place, were bolted to steel frames. At one side was the big door, like a barn door, through which the car had been driven. A pile of metal junk at one side of the big room indicated that the back of the fun house had been a general garage and storage place. Two army cots were set up, blankets still in place. There was a kerosene stove and a small stock of canned goods. Jerry pointed to a small break in the bottom of one wall. Rick looked and saw a rat trap set and waiting. The men had the traps all right. Captain Douglas had said, They used what they had on hand to wreck his plane. The state trooper had the hood of the car up the flashlight working. As the second took a list from his pocket, he read off the serial number of the engine. The trooper with the paper called out, It's the maroon sedan, Captain. Same engine number. Scotty had been searching through a cabinet. I know how they painted it, too, he said suddenly. Look over here. He had found a small compressor driven by a little electric motor from which hung battery clips. A spray gun stood nearby. The car's own battery had provided the power for the spray painting. Captain Douglas rubbed his chin thoughtfully. This is a permanent hideout of some kind. It's too well equipped for anything else. Now we have to find out who occupied it. The second trooper had been bending over the stove. He joined Captain Douglas and said, "'I'm afraid there's not much chance for fingerprints, sir. The stove has been wet clean, and I bet the car has too. All we could do is hope they overlooked a few places.' "'We'll try anyway,' Captain Douglas decided. "Parks, go back to the barracks and get yourself an outfit.' As the trooper hurried out, he turned to the boys. "'How about a conducted tour of the rest of the building?' Rick led the way through the mirror room into the main part of the funhouse. Wish I didn't have a bum leg. I'd like to try the slide. Captain Douglas looked over the big room. What's upstairs? There used to be a dark labyrinth, Rick told him. I don't remember anything else. Why don't we take a look, then? The captain led the way, and the boys followed him up the stairs to the landing. At the top, they found a small booth just to the left of the stairs. Inside the booth was a lever projecting from the floor. Scotty tried the lever and the stairs, ironed out into a slide. He pulled the lever back, and the slide became stairs again. "Come stand on the stairs. Let me try it, Scotty suggested Jerry. The reporter grinned. Not me. I'm too old and real. You stand on the stairs. I'll work the lever. Behind the booth, the roof slanted down sharply. Rick saw light leaking through a crack and called the captain. There's a trap door of some kind to the roof. Douglas found the catch and threw it. A short distance away, a ladder rose from the roof to the roller coaster track. The captain got out onto the roof and took a closer look at the very top of the coaster, which was perhaps fifty feet beyond the funhouse. Nothing there, he reported. They closed the door that had once been a mysterious, noisy labyrinth. The partitions were still there, but the roof leaked light and the paint had flaked off. By night, it would still be a labyrinth. By day, it was merely an odd, dirty room. Nothing to be gained by hanging around here, Captain Douglas said. Suppose we walk next door to the project, Rick. I'd like to see this thing you're building. Besides, it's lunchtime. Think we could wrangle about to eat? Sure, if you like beans, Scotty said grinning. There isn't a cook in the place. Beans and coffee are the only thing on hand. In my youth, I served in the Marine Corps, Captain Douglas said. I estimated once that I had probably eaten about ten billion beans when I was in uniform. I think I could eat a few more. Rick cautioned Jerry as they walked to the fence at around the corner to the project. We don't mind our friends looking in on the project, but no stories, Jerry, please. We'd rather not have any publicity. Weiss and Winston greeted the boys and the officer. We're making good progress, Weiss reported. There will be a preliminary test tomorrow sometime, and perhaps we can make an outdoor test on the following day, unless we run into unexpected difficulties. Incidentally, Winston added, your father called Rick. He said to tell you Mike Curtis had He asked if you could meet him at the Whiteside Landing at nine tonight. He had something to tell you. Rick looked at Captain Douglas. Mike has been working on the amusement park ownership, I guess. We'll meet him, Captain, and then we'll give you a call. This may be a lead, and if so, it'll be our first one. Chapter 11 Shots in the Dark I suppose it isn't really strange that those men should leave a perfectly good car behind, Barbie remarked. After all, it wasn't their car. Rick grinned. The owner is going to be surprised when the police return it. He loses a maroon sedan and gets a black one back. I hope it isn't a girl who owns it, Barbie said. The two boys and Barbie were sitting on the front porch of the big house, looking at the ocean, waiting until time for Scotty and Rick to go to the pier to meet Mike. Scotty hadn't been paying much attention to the small talk between Rick and Barbie, but he looked up at the last remark. Why do you hope it isn't a girl? She probably picked all her clothes to go with the color of the car, Barbie said seriously. Now she'll either have to have the car repainted or get a whole new wardrobe. The boys laughed so hard that Hartz and Brant came out onto the porch to see what had happened. When Barbie repeated her remark, the scientist grinned. I don't know what all the laughter is about. That's a good theoretical conclusion based on empirical data. Rick lifted his eyebrows. And just what is empirical data? His father chuckled. You'll find a dictionary in the library. Scotty looked at his watch. We have time enough for a little research. I'll go look it up. While Scotty was gone, Hartson Brandt asked, Do you feel well enough to go out tonight, Rick? I could go to meet Mike for you. Thanks, Dad. I'm fine, honestly. I knew you'd get in trouble if you tried finding that car, Barbie said. harts and Brant smiled. More empirical data. Now I'm getting really curious, Rick replied. What's keeping Scotty? Barbie looked in through the front door. Here he comes now. Scotty was grinning. I a new word to the vocabulary, he told Rick. Empirical means based on observation and experience, rather than on science or theory. In other words, it's the way that girls reach conclusions. Well, Barbie said smugly, if I may make an observation, it's my experience that every time you two start to unravel a mystery, you get into trouble. She looked pointedly at Rick. That may be empirical, but it's true. I can't deny it, Rick said. But this case has taught me a lesson. You mean you won't try to solve any more mysteries? Barbie asked quickly. Not exactly, Rick replied with a grin. The lesson is to be more careful to invent a new warning system for the next plane I get. One that can't be disconnected by some smart guy like the one who sabotaged us. Listen, Rick, Scotty said with a glance at his watch. We better get started. Mock should be arriving in the next fifteen minutes. "'I hope he has something that'll give us a new lead,' Rick said. "'And at the amusement park isn't much help to Captain Douglas. "'Chances are the caretaker and his pal are out of the area by now "'and in some other car.' "'I'm afraid you're right, Rick,' Hartson Brandt agreed. "'But every possibility should be explored. "'Ask Mike to stay here tonight if he plans to stay over.' "'The boys said goodnight to Barbie and the scientist. "'Rick patted Dismal, who had been asleep at Barbie's feet, and the two walked down the path to the landing steps. It was dark with only a faint trace of sunset remaining on the western horizon. Rick chose the speediest of the island's two boats and asked Scotty to take over. He was most comfortable with his legs stretched out, and that wasn't possible in the driver's seat. He cast off the lines and got aboard as Scotty started the engine. Then he relaxed as the other boy backed out of the slip, spun the wheel, and started them off toward Whiteside. Scotty switched on the searchlight mounted on the bow, and a swath of white light showed the water ahead. He advanced the gas lever and the bow lifted with increased speed. Rick spoke over the engine roar. "'It'll be good to see Mike again!' Scotty nodded. "'Even if he doesn't have much news!' The run to Whiteside was a short one. Before long, the lights of the town were bright enough "'to make use of the big searchlight unnecessary. "'Scotty cut the switch "'and steered toward the string of lights "'that marked the dock area. "'The small boat pier which they used was beyond, "'and it had no lights. "'A few other boats were tied up when they arrived, "'but there was no one in sight. "'Scotty cut the engine as Rick tied the craft to a cleat. "'We must be a little early,' Rick said. "'His voice sounded loud in the sudden silence.' We might as well wait right here. Scotty agreed and they sat in companionable silence waiting. A car came down the road toward Whiteside but turned off before it reached the pier. The water lapped gently against the side of the boat and Rick began to feel sleepy. Once he thought he saw someone move across the shore toward the end of the pier. It was too dark to see details. He saw only a vague silhouette against the glow from the city. He started to call out and then realized that Mike would drive into the parking lot among the trees that lined the waterfront at this point. He sank back into the leather seat. Probably somebody out for a breath of cool sea air. It was a good night for it. Car lights appeared from the direction of town. Rick waited to see if the car was going to swing into the parking lot or whether it was a casual passerby going along the waterfront road toward the summer cottages a half mile beyond. The car slowed and passed the end of the pier and swung into the parking lot. Rick jumped to his feet and started to yell a greeting, but the words clogged in his throat. Scotty's grip on his arm told him his pal had seen the same thing. At the edge of the tree belt, on the waterfront a few yards up the pier, three men were crouching, and the lights of the car had glittered from metal in their hands. Rick and Scotty acted instinctively as a unit in such cases. Without speaking, they got to the pier, crouched, and ran along it. At the end of the boardwalk was crushed rock fill, which anchored the inshore piles. They reached it and scooped up rocks without stopping, and ran toward the parking lot. The car engine died, and the lights switched off. Rick yelled, "'Mike! Watch out! Ambush!' A gun barked spitefully ten feet away, and Rick heard a brief crack as something sailed past his head. He threw a rock at the flash, a powerful overhand throw with his shoulder behind it. The rock landed with a meaty thud, followed by a cry of pain. Scotty pulled Rick down as the three guns started blazing. For a moment, Rick thought they were all shooting at him. His mouth dried up and his tongue stuck to the roof of his mouth. Then he realized the shots were aimed at the parking lot. All the men were shooting at Mike. He rose to one knee and started hurling rocks. Scotty was right beside him. From somewhere in the trees, Mike yelled, Give it to them, guys! A gun cracked from the direction of the voice, and Rick knew Mike was shooting back. An instant later, there was silence. The three men had realized they were wasting their shots. That meant they were jockeying for a better position. Rick felt around, careful to make no noise, and collected a few more rocks. Scotty was inching ahead on his stomach. Rick followed. He felt sudden pain in his injured leg as he dragged it over some obstacle. He bit his lip. The three men would shoot at any noise, he knew, and he didn't intend on making any. Scotty was a dim figure moving slowly forward. Rick kept his eyes on him, ready to take a cue from his friend. He saw Scotty rise to one knee and saw his arm move. A rock landed off to their left. Instantly, guns cracked as the unknown enemy fired at the sound. Scotty had tossed the rock with his left arm. His steady right arm flashed down in a strong throw, and a lucky one. The rock clashed with metal as one of the enemy let out a strangled yelp as a pistol clattered to the rocky ground. In that instant, Mike Curtis switched on his car lights. The twin beams caught and blinded the three men. They turned to flee from the revealing glare and ran head-on into a barrage of rocks hurled by Rick and Scotty. The young men were outside of the glare of the headlights, but they were only a dozen feet from the three men. And two of the enemy were the caretaker and his pal. Rick threw, and wild anger sped the rock straight to its mark. These were the men who had tried to kill him and Scotty. His rock caught the caretaker over the eye and sent him reeling backwards. Scotty's arm flashed down in an overhand throw that had all of his weight behind it. The stone brought a groan from the caretaker's friend, but the enemy wasn't taking it lying down. All three were firing blindly at the rock throwers. Rick and Scotty, however, were past caring. They only knew that here were the men who had tried to kill them. One of them, the driver of the hit-and-run that had struck Barbie. They stood upright, anger giving accuracy and weight to their throws. Rocks crashed into faces, chests, and stomachs. The rocks bruised or brought blood, but they couldn't land a knockout blow because the rocks weren't heavy enough. Mike Curtis was firing also. Suddenly, the third man clutched at his arm and dropped his pistol. Instantly, the red-headed man, who had been with the caretaker, let out a yell. Get out the lights! As though on signal, the lights went out. Mike Curtis had turned them off before the enemy could fire at him. Scotty whispered hoarsely in Rick's ear. I'm out of rocks. I can't find any. We better retreat. Rick had only one left. With the lights out, he no longer had a target. He started moving backwards, slowly, carefully feeling for each footstep. Now that the face-to-face fight was over, at least for the moment, he realized how foolish he and Scotty had been to stand up to guns while armed only with stones. But he felt exultation as well. The gunmen had come off second best. And the fight wasn't over yet. He backed cautiously, eyes peeled for movement in front of him, until his foot grated on loose stones. Then he knew he was at the pier once more. He stooped and took a handful of stones. This time, he rejected all but the biggest. He filled his pockets with them, one at a time, careful to make no noise. Where were the gunmen? He lobbed a rock into the air in the direction in which he had last seen them. He listened carefully and heard the rock bouncing off a tree trunk. But there was no reaction. Scotty was crouching next to him. Rick got down in the crouching position, too and felt sudden wetness as the motion put too much strain on his leg. He had opened up the wound again, and it hurt like the very Dickens. He grit his teeth and tried to ignore it. There was silence except for the lapping of the water under the pier and the sound of a high breeze in the trees. Somewhere in the darkness ahead, men were moving or waiting. They had no choice but to wait it out. Rick grinned in the darkness, He had repaid part of the debt. So had Scotty. From the direction of town, a siren wailed, and Rick stiffened. The police. Of course, somebody would have heard the shooting and reported it. There was a sudden crashing in the underbrush some distance away. They're getting away, Scotty said. He started off on a run. His foot crashed into a tin can someone had left. Mike Curtis's voice rose. Stay where you are. Don't try to follow them. A gunshot answered him. The flash was faint through the trees. The gunmen had made good on their escape. Rick was sure of it when an engine coughed into life and tires spinning on gravel marked the getaway car. He and Scotty ran to the road to meet the oncoming police car. Mike Curtis emerged from the trees and joined them. The three shook hands. Fine reception committee you fixed up for me. Mike said, I can tell you don't live in glass houses, he chuckled, not after seeing how you throw those stones. The police car saw the three and skidded to a stop. An officer leaned out. So tell me, who's been shooting? Go after them, Mike snapped. They headed up the road, not a minute ago. You may catch them if you step on it. Not so fast, who are you? Rick stepped forward. I'm Rick Bringant. Please, hurry. You might be able to catch them. The driver of the police car turned his flashlight on the three. Yeah, those are the kids from Spindrift. All right, let's go. Where can we find you when we get back? State police barracks, Rick said swiftly. The police car shot ahead, siren wailing. Too bad we didn't see the car, Scotty said. We can't even pass on a description to the roadblocks. Rick had a sudden thought. Who says we can't? Listen, they're marked up plenty. Let's go to Captain Douglas. He can radio a description of the men. The roadblocks can stop every car and look the occupants over, can't they? Mike Curtis was already running for his car. You're right, Scotty exclaimed. Come on, we may get them yet.